Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you today. Uh, we are beginning a mini-series entitled Fired Up, and uh, this is just uh, an opportunity for us as staff to sort of step in and uh, give uh, Tim an opportunity to sort of take some vacation time as well as to allow him to uh, make some preparations and study and prayer uh, as he begins to uh, think about the next uh, sermon series that he'll be presenting to us. And so I have the opportunity this morning to share with you a message entitled Hope for a Broken World. We live in a broken world, don't we? Very broken. Well, it reminds me of a story of a woman named Melanie whose life really was very broken. Melanie is one of those drop-dead gorgeous girls who never had trouble getting guys to notice her. I mean, she never was without a date. And by the time she was old enough to get married, proposals were streaming her way left and right. When Melanie met Ray, she was sure that they would marry and live happily ever after. But she was wrong, because Ray turned out to be a jerk. After three years, the marriage was a disaster, and divorce soon followed. Well, Melanie was determined not to make the same mistake again, and so when Robert came into her life, she was careful. I mean, very careful. But Robert was more level-headed than Ray, and he promised her the world. And so Melanie walked down the aisle again. Within a year, that marriage was over too. Well, then Reggie came along, and this was sweet, fun-loving Reggie. Ray and Robert, they were boring. Melanie knew all she needed was a little fun in her life, and so she and Reggie flew off to Las Vegas and got married. Melanie's family and friends at work started taking bets on how long it would last. Well, sure enough, after 14 months, the fun was gone, and so was Reggie. Fast forward 10 years. By now, Melanie had gone through a total of five husbands and five divorces. She's in her late 30s, and her face carries the tracks of thousands of tears, and each wrinkle has its own story of its own. Her friends and family laugh, and they say that she's nothing but a big flirt. But they use other descriptive words when she isn't listening. Melanie met Phil at work. They started dating, and Phil went through three failed marriages himself, and so Melanie moves in with Phil, but neither of them ever wants to mention marriage. Melanie knows her life is broken, and she's really miserable. The bitter resentment of her past continues to dog her. The failed relationships, the scorn of family and friends... The spiritual hole that is in her heart that is so deep that she can't even begin to see the bottom. She doesn't know where to turn or or what to do. And then one day, one day, a friend at work mentions her church. Well, desperate, Melanie shows up for Sunday at church. She does so with all of her guilt and with all of her shame, with all of her known failures and all of her known brokenness. She takes a risk. A few people at church talk about her because they know her and they know her story. But but there's one person who talks not about her, but talks to her. Let's hit the pause button here um, and stop the story. The story of Melanie is true, but her name has been changed. Uh, Melanie's story is the real-life story of the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will loan you a Bible. Just keep your hands raised. 
You know, I'm sure that you know as well as I that in a broken world, there are thousands of messed up Melanie's out there. I could simply change the gender and say there are thousands of messed up Mike's out there. And no offense to Pastor Mike sitting here, but um, we could insert any name and any gender here. Now, you may be here this morning thinking, wow, I am sure glad that my life is not as messed up as Melanie's. And it may not be. But I'm sure that you've experienced some degree of brokenness, some degree of hurt, some degree of disappointment over a relationship that maybe has collapsed. A business deal that maybe has has gone bad. A job that was lost. Maybe a loved one who suddenly passed away. Maybe there was a personal moral failure. Maybe you were gossiped about. Maybe a confidence of yours was betrayed. Maybe you received a devastating diagnosis of cancer. Maybe you were sinned against and ridiculed and bullied. All of that brought a sense of brokenness. I mean, you name it, we've all experienced a measure of of brokenness because we live in this broken, sin-cursed world. And there's an associated sense of hope that can and does evaporate like the morning dew on on a beautiful summer day. But here's the question that I have for you this morning as you sit here. In that brokenness, no matter the degree or the depth of the brokenness, is there reason for hope and opportunity for help? And I'm here to say that because of all that Jesus Christ is, and all that he has available for you, there's reason for hope in your brokenness. No matter what it is. And we'll see that Jesus meets the need of not only the Samaritan woman in her depth of brokenness, but Jesus is here today to meet your need, your brokenness, and respond accordingly. But before we look at the passage in John chapter 4, we need to understand the reason why John, the apostle, included this encounter in his gospel. I mean, in John chapter 20, verse 31, at the end of his gospel, he writes the reason why he included all of the stories that he included in his gospel. He says in John 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe, okay, so that you might believe, well, believe what? That Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. And that by believing you might have life in His name. Not just life, but abundant life and eternal life. You see, this story in John chapter 4 is about how awesome and amazing Jesus Christ is. And how only He will satisfy your deepest longings when you look to Him. As Jesus Christ, some 2,000 years ago, stepped into a broken world. And into the broken lives of those that He came to seek and to save. That you might believe. So let's look at three amazing truths that can give us hope in the midst of whatever brokenness you are walking through this morning. Whatever the depth or degree of brokenness, there's hope. There's reason for hope for you today. And the first point is, look to Him. Jesus will satisfy your deepest longings. He will. Look at verse 5 of John chapter 4 as I read through verse 15 where it says there, And so he, that is Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Well, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave to us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Well, as Jesus, as God, started his conversation with this woman at the well, known as the Samaritan woman, who, renamed, who, who remains unnamed except for that title, he already knew everything about her. He knew she had failed in marriage five times, was in an adulterous relationship, and he knew all of her other moral failures and all of her brokenness from start to finish. And that's why Jesus sought her out. He's here to seek and to save those that are lost and broken and in need. I mean, if you go back to uh, verse 4 of of John chapter 4, it says he had to pass through Samaria, which wasn't typical of the Jews that day. They would do all they could to go around Samaria, but it said that Jesus had to pass through Samaria that day. Interesting. Jesus had a divine appointment. There was a woman that was in need. He knew there was an outcast in Samaria who, who was empty, who was unhappy, who was hopeless. And you know what? Sin and failure do that to people. They're empty. They're thirsty. They're needy. As a woman came with the empty water jar to the well that morning, that was symbolic of the emptiness in her own soul and her own heart. Well, when the woman came to draw water, she was lonely. Look at verse 6. It says it was the sixth hour. Now, you might not think anything of that, but the sixth hour was noon, and it was customary in that culture for the women during that era to come to the well in groups, either early in the morning or early in the evening when it was in the cooler part of the day. Because that was a social event for the women of the city to gather and deepen friendships to enjoy one another's company. But this woman came in the middle of the day alone by herself and why why'd she come alone i think it was probably because of her lifestyle and her reputation i mean she was a social outcast no one to open her heart to no one to relax with no one to share with no one to to laugh with no one to cry with alone in her own prison of brokenness and guilt that was a samaritan woman does that describe maybe somebody you know Or does that maybe describe you as you sit here this morning? Feeling a sense of brokenness and alone. You see, well, when Jesus spoke to the woman and he asked her for a drink of water, he he, he did it very respectfully. He did it very humbly and very sincerely. And and, and she was surprised at this. Because if you look at verse 9, it says, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, the backstory of this tension between Jews and, and, and Samaritans 
There's this ethnic tension that existed in Samaria because Samaritans were half-breeds. These were Jews who had intermarried with a despised enemy nation, the Assyrians, some 12 generations earlier. Well, today, Sychar and Jacob's Well still exist in the West Bank, which is in Palestinian territory. And the way the Palestinians and the Israelis regard each other today is exactly the way the Jews felt towards the Samaritans and vice versa. You know, deep hatred, deep disrespect. And so what were all the feelings and the emotions that this Samaritan woman was dealing with when she encountered Jesus, which was a surprise to her that a Jew would be sitting there at this well as she came alone? A couple of things, a couple of emotions, a couple of feelings I think she was walking through her through here is that first that when the woman came to draw water and saw Jesus, there was this immediate sense of, of feeling ethnically inferior as a Samaritan, a half breed, not a pure blooded individual here. Well, secondly, I think when the woman came to draw water and was asked for a drink by Jesus, there was a sense of personal shame because because I think her her failed marriages and and her present relationships, it, it was such a heavy burden of guilt that we, we sometimes think that everybody knows everything about our sin. And so I think she came with a sense of personal shame to that well that day. Well, I think the woman came to draw water when she saw Jesus, a Jew. She was confused about the religious tension that existed between both the Jews and the Samaritans. When she came to draw water and saw Jesus there, I think there was also an awareness of the gender bias that existed in that culture and saw women as as less valuable, less valuable than men. When the woman came to draw water, she was thirsty physically, but in reality, she was thirsty spiritually. And Jesus knew that, and he knew her brokenness and her deepest longings. She was lonely, feeling ethnically inferior, dealing with the burden of personal shame, confused about religious sort of things, dealing with this gender bias that existed, and, and, and just th- spiritually thirsty. And so Jesus, in verse 10, begins to share a message of hope. A message of hope with someone whose life was messed up, miserable, and hopeless. And Jesus has a gift, and it's important, a gift, Something that can't be worked for, but something that's just going to be freely given because the very nature of a gift is you can't work for it or earn it. A gift, the nature of a gift is that it's given freely. And Jesus has a gift for her that would fill and meet her deepest longings and needs. And Jesus said, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, something much more. Well, Jesus was talking about the gift of salvation, sins forgiven, hope restored, eternal life. But the woman missed what Jesus was really talking about. Look at verses 11 and 12 there. Then the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She missed the point. She wasn't really hearing what Jesus was saying to her at that moment in time. But how much like her are we? I mean, how many times have you and I been guilty of the same thing? Missing the point, distracted by some other things, not being a good listener. 
I remember many a conversation with my kids, my wife, Becky, where, where they're telling me about their day. And as they're telling me about their day, either sitting at the dinner table or on the couch or something, you know, I'm shaking my head, nodding in agreement, but the reality is I'm just not listening until such point that they go, Earth to Dad, Earth to Kent, are you there? And I go, yes, I am now. But how often are we like that just in life that we miss what God might be saying to us because of the, the, the frenetic activity that we're involved in and so busy with just stuff and life and, you know... The woman here was missing the point, as we oftentimes miss the point. See, there was a a big moment for me not too long ago as I was walking through what could be described as as a deep valley, as the psalmist might describe in Psalm 23. As I was going through my cancer treatments for leukemia and lymphoma, that the reality of Psalm 23 verses 2 and 3 became clear to me where it says there, and I didn't realize this until that season where it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. You see, I believe that was a season in my life In my life, when God made me lie down, it's as if he was putting his loving, compassionate hand on me and saying, Kent, time to stop, time to slow down. You're not listening to me. Now, I'm not saying that's how God always gets our attention, but for me, that was huge. There may be times in life when we are so distracted And we're just not listening to God as a child of His. And God's trying to say to us, listen up. Do you hear what I want to say to you? And it was during that season where He made me lie down. Because I needed to, as Psalm 46 verse 10 says, to be still and know that He was God. There was an incredible sense of satisfaction and thirst that was, that was met that, that I can't even really begin to explain except for the fact that, that he made me lie down in this green pasture. And as a result of that, my soul was restored. And what an incredible blessing that's been. You see, Jesus knew that the woman wasn't clued in to what he was really talking about. And so he gently and he patiently explains in more detail what he means because he knows she was seeking. He knows that she was longing. He knows that she was hoping for something more. Jesus was offering a gift, and it's a gift that satisfies. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The woman here took it to mean the water in Jacob's well, but Jesus was speaking to her to the hole that was in her heart that was huge. And you know, friends, when we look to draw our satisfaction, longings from the wells of the world, the wells of the world like pleasure or popularity, position, possession, pornography, power, prestige, finance, family, friends, Fame, career, children, clubs, sports, sex, success, recognition, reputation, religion, entertainment, exercise, health. Have I covered most of the wells of the world? I think so. 
When we pursue those and believe that, that we'll find fulfillment and satisfaction and have our thirst quenched from those things, the reality is they will never satisfy. We will be thirsty again and again and again. You know, while the things of the world, we have to admit, can temporarily be meaningful and can temporarily be pleasing, they eventually leave us emptier than before. Asking the question, is that all there is? If you're looking for deep, deep, lasting satisfaction from any of these wells that the world offers you, you will be deeply dissatisfied and thirsty again and again and again. It was the theologian, St. Augustine, who prayed this prayer, Lord, thou hast made me for thyself. Therefore, my heart is restless till it finds its rest in thee. Lord, thou hast made me for thyself. Therefore, my heart is restless till it finds its rest in thee. You see, even though the woman here misunderstood what Jesus was offering, Jesus used the opportunity to redirect her into a deeper understanding of a spiritual inner thirst that could only be satisfied with what he was offering to her. Look at verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give, something that only uniquely Jesus Christ can provide, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The water that Jesus would give would be available constantly so that when one was thirsty, one could drink immediately so there would never get terribly thirsty again. It was a satisfaction that could be found only in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is talking not only about everlasting life here, but he's also talking about a refreshing, invigorating, exciting life in the, in the here and the now. When you look to Jesus and when you walk with Jesus. Because Jesus will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. A joy that isn't based upon your circumstances. A hope that never ceases. And a love that never ends. That's the gift. That's what Jesus is offering. And when you look to Jesus and surrender to him, he will satisfy your deepest longings. The woman then said to Jesus in verse 15, she goes, sir, give me this water. So that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. It's like she still doesn't get it. It's obviously, it's obvious she doesn't understand still. And so in, in order to help this woman realize what Jesus is actually talking about, he graciously, without condemnation, asks the woman a question, a very probing question that really revealed that he knew everything about her which is the second truth that can give us hope in the midst of our brokenness. And that second truth is, trust Him. Trust Him. Jesus knows you thoroughly and yet loves you perfectly. Wow. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. Well, the woman answered him, I have no husband, Jesus said to her. You are right, saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. And what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
I perceive that you are a prophet. Amazing here that the woman, when confronted with the reality of her past failures and life of sin, she didn't deny, she didn't excuse, she didn't rationalize or try to hide her failures and her brokenness. She admitted to it, which is what we often do when we're confronted by the reality of our sin. We we deny, we excuse, we blame, we justify, we hide. And, and, and the reality is, friends, that this has been happening ever since the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3. Don't turn there, but interesting that when sin was committed on the part of Adam and Eve, God is found walking in the cool of the day. And here he is trying to, uh, not to find because he knows where they are, but as he meets with them, um, it says in uh, Genesis 3 verse 8 that um, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord after they had committed the sin. Hiding. And then if you go down in verse 12, it says the man said, as God was questioning him about the act that they had committed, the man then goes, well, it's the woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree. Blaming somebody else. And then later on in verse 13, the woman responds as she's trying to deal with what she was just being accused of here. She goes, well, no, it was the serpent that you created. Hiding, blaming, justifying. We are so good at that. We do that so well. And when we do that, we don't find ourselves in a place, in a position where God can begin to work and heal and fill our lives. You know, I think in a sincere response, because of all that Jesus knew about her and how he revealed her sin, and she and she didn't deny it, justify it, excuse it. She responded by saying, You're a prophet. Well, she'll find out sooner and a little bit later that he's more than just a prophet, but he's the Son of God. And she asks the question. And I think the question she asks is, where can I find God? How can I get right with God? Where, where, do I, where do I make an acceptable sacrifice to Him for my sin? Where do I do that? Now, there's two school of thoughts here. One is that this woman was trying to use a, a diversionary tactic to sort of, you know, get off the topic and subject of her sin and her brokenness. Well, the other thought here is that there was a genuine confusion because of her religious background and it's kind of like, so, so if I need to be doing some stuff about my life, where do I make an acceptable sacrifice? Is it here or is it in Jerusalem? And I really think it was the latter because when Jesus responds, he says, woman. Now, we oftentimes read that in somewhat of an offensive, disrespectful way. But the reality is that was really a term of respect here. It's like, ma'am, miss, listen to me kind of a thing. It's like, where can I find God? How can I get right with Him? Where do I make an acceptable sacrifice? Where? And and Jesus then, at that point, dismisses the differences between the Jews and Samaritans by saying, look at verse 21. He says there, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Wow. A lot there about worship, about God, about a response to who He is. But let me just say here that Jesus is, is, is saying that the location of worship is not as nearly as important as our heart attitude. You see, by overemphasizing where we worship, we may be neglecting the substance of our worship. If we believe that the only time we can worship is when we gather here in this place, the worship center, we've missed it. If we believe we, we need a certain place to worship, then our worship won't happen unless we are in that certain place. You following me? I mean, worship needs to be 24-7. A 24-7 experience of ours. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of what? Okay, let's hear that. Which is your spiritual act of? It's worship. We're not surrendering our wills and our way to God just whenever it's convenient. But it's on a 24-7 experience. Worship is one of our, our pillars here at Harvest. It's, on the, it's printed on the front of your bulletin that says to know Him personally, to adore Him actively. Not when we just come into this place, but when we walk with Him Monday through Saturday. And to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we do that as Messiah, prophet, priest, and king, and the Christ, the anointed one. And Jesus says to the woman in verse 26, get this, I who speak to you am He. It's like, bang! She gets it. You see, the Father is seeking such worshipers. Let me say that worship is the essential thing. The central thing. Not just another thing. It is recognizing that He is my everything. Not just when we show up here on Sundays. And so we need to make sure that our life belongs to Him and everything, completely His, every moment of every day. Those are the kind of worshipers that God is seeking after and longing for. Well, as the Samaritan woman began to understand who it was that she was talking to, she expressed a sudden cry of her heart because this man had known all along who she was. He'd known all about her sinfulness, all about her brokenness, hurts and heartaches, and he had known all about her past and loved her and offered her this amazing gift of forgiveness. And as she recognized that, she declared with absolute certainty, look at verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then, man, life transformed as she understood at that point in time. She understood that he was Messiah. And I believe it was in that moment that she had never, the things that she had had longed for, hoped for, dreamed of, was found in this man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And suddenly and miraculously, instantaneously, she was filled with joy because she experienced the love and the forgiveness and the healing as she put her faith and trust in this person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
Incredible. You see, Jesus promised forgiveness of sins and its penalty when he said in John chapter 8, verse 31, that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Not being distracted by all of life's stuff, but abiding in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And this woman needed great freedom. Freedom from her sin, freedom from her guilt, freedom from her shame. Jesus goes on in verse 36. says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What a message of hope. You see, Jesus promises you freedom from your past, and the Samaritan woman certainly needed that. And you may be here this morning in need of that as well. We must realize there is nothing you or I can do to earn God's love. We can't work hard enough to gain His love. He knows me for who I really am, and He still loves me with all of my brokenness, with all of my scars, with all of the ugliness that's in my life. You know, it's kind of like our kids, if you have children. You know, we as parents, we know all of their shortcomings, all of their faults, all of their bad habits, all of their weaknesses. And yet, we as parents... Love them thoroughly. At least we should love them thoroughly. We don't love the junk in their lives, but we love them. That's the kind of love that Jesus has for you and me. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Yet when God looks at our heart, what does he see? Does he see something in there that deserves his love? Absolutely not. But he loves you and he loves me anyways. Don't miss the point. God doesn't love you because you're worthy of his love. Because of who you think you are or what you're able to bring to God. God loves you not because but in spite of. Realize the Samaritan woman had developed patterns and habits of sin over many years that left her empty and thirsty for change. And Jesus offered her, and he offers you, forgiveness from your patterns of sin. This is an incredible message of hope. You know, probably most of us who have become Christ followers, who experienced God's grace and his forgiveness, have also at times um, found a, a troubling pattern in our lives that goes something like this. Sin, confess. Sin, confess. Sin, confess. Sin, give up. You ever been there? Or is that just me? I think we've all been there. It's like we know we are forgiven as as followers of Jesus Christ. But that's a rather difficult fact to enjoy when we sense that we should be experiencing a greater measure of freedom over that sin rather than coming back to God having to confess the same sin over and over and over and over again even though he's promised to forgive. And we wonder, in the midst of that, is there any freedom from me, or am I going to be controlled by this pattern of sin for the rest of my life? And and you know what, friends? The wonderful news here is that there is a place of freedom for you. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but to also then cleanse us from all unrighteousness, or to deal with the, with the patterns and the habits of, of sinful behavior. And what 1 John 1, 9 is kind of saying, it's like God will not only forgive you, which is the equivalent of kind of mowing a dandelion off at the, at, 
The flower with your lawnmower above the ground so the flower is removed. But then he promises to cleanse us, which is like God, you know, pulling the dandelion out from the root. And you see, you need to be convinced that there's a place of freedom from the patterns of sin because Jesus Christ has already purchased your freedom and has appointed and declared you free from the patterns and the dominion of sin. You see, Jesus wants to forgive you your sin and deliver you from the patterns of, of sin that are in your life. But there may also be the need for you with Jesus' help to experience forgiveness from the voices of shame in your past. And again, I can't begin to imagine this, this Samaritan woman, the kind of patterns of sin that had developed over a lifetime as she lived her life, and then the patterns that had developed, and the sense of shame that was also associated with, with the kind of life that she had lived, which I believe for the Samaritan woman would, was huge. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation, none whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. If you've come to Jesus Christ in genuine faith and repentance and received his forgiveness, you have been forgiven and have been released from the guilt of those sins and failures. You're released and forgiven. And it's now time for you to put shame in its place because it will seek to ruin you if you don't run from that shame and hand it over to Jesus. You see, Jesus promised in John chapter 10, verse 10, He says, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So if the voices of guilt, if the voices of shame, if the voices of condemnation are are dogging you this morning, if they're pursuing you and you are living under that burden, you're living under a lie. And the only way that you're going to be free is if you fight those lies with God's truth because the truth will set you free. But you might be here asking, Kent, but how do I do that? Two things. First, face reality. Simply face reality. You will never know the forgiveness from your patterns of sin and shame and live in the freedom that God has made available to you if you don't honestly confront the places where you're living in denial. You're trying to do sin management. That's denial. And as God gives you his word and you are confronted by his truth, you can't say to God, um, leave me alone. I've got this. I'm going to manage it myself. I don't want to hear that. Face reality. Facing reality is submitting to his truth and you must come out of denial about any area where you are not free. But second, you must also renounce any patterns of behavior that you know are not God-honoring for you. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 say this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To renounce, to reject, means you're cutting off those patterns and habits of sin, which mean, means you, you don't dabble with it, you don't play with it, you don't think that, you know, that, oh, I can deal with this management of sin and I can enjoy it for a season and don't go there. Don't see how close to the edge of the cliff you can go before you fall off. Renounce it. Deal with it. To renounce ungodliness means you remove every door of entrance for this sin in your life. Do whatever you have to do to remove the doors 
of entrance. Well, the final truth we need to embrace that can give us great hope in the midst of our brokenness is number three. Believe in him. Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is the savior of the world. Look at verse 27. Then when his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. Well, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought you something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that you will believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know this indeed is the Savior of the world. We should be so blown away by Jesus Christ that we should want to share this good news of forgiveness with others that he is the Savior of the world. You see, this woman's life was changed, and all that she could think about or talk about was Jesus. Not in some fanatical, obnoxious way. But you know, I think she was no longer discouraged and controlled by her brokenness, by her failures and sin. She'd been transformed from one degree of glory to the next in even such a short period of time. And I think as she went back to her hometown of Sychar, her friends and her neighbors were immediately struck by the change in her demeanor. There was something different about her. And look at verse 29. She invited them to come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And I'm sure there's more there than just that statement. And so they did. As the Samaritans streamed towards Jacob's well to find Jesus for themselves, he told his disciples, verse 35, he says, Look, and I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And as the crowds came to Jesus, I think leading them and urging them onward was a Samaritan woman. She was the reason a revival broke out and many came to know Jesus. And because of her changed life, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And then when they were introduced to Jesus himself, verse 41, many more believed because of his word and they knew, verse 42, it says, indeed, he is the savior of the world. What an incredible story of hope in the midst of brokenness. What is so incredible to me is that no matter how broken we are, how badly we have messed up or failed, God is able, as he did with the Samaritan woman, to work in us, to work in me, to work in you to accomplish some incredibly, some amazing things when we're willingly to allow our lives to be reshaped by Jesus Christ. As the worship team comes forward, let me close by asking this. Jesus said to the religious professionals of his day, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Are you sitting here this morning as somebody who is that righteous person? Feeling as if you've got it all under control and everything's managed? Or do you recognize the brokenness, the hurt, the failure, the heartache, the hole that's in your soul? If you're messed up, if you're broken, if you're thirsty, Jesus is seeking you today. He's waiting at the well patiently, lovingly to meet with you. He wants you to know that no matter the depth or the degree of your brokenness, there is hope. So look to him. Trust in him. Believe in him. Because Jesus Christ is our redeemer. He's our healer. He's our savior. He's our defender. He's the Lamb of God, and He is our great King. Father, thank You. Thank You for these moments we've been able to share together. My prayer here now is that for each and every one who sits in each one of these seats, that as each one just reflects upon their own life, and as Your Holy Spirit just continues to do His work here in this place, may we just do business with You. May we be honest and transparent, because You already know everything about us. So, Father, I pray, I pray that you would do your work here in this place as lives are transformed, as as thirst is, Lord, you just work. We pray this in your name.